Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, economist Bruce Yandel demystifies some confusing economic data that's emerged in this pandemic. Writer and Cato fellow Radley Balco discusses how reporters talk when they talk about cops who engage in misconduct. And Colorado Democratic Representative Leslie Harrod discusses why states should adopt police reform now. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. June, we celebrated a not-altogether-pleasant anniversary that is the anniversary of the Jones Act, a law that restricts uh, shipping uh, to, from, and among the states in the United States, uh, meant to protect a particular industry. Colin Grabo and Dan Eikenson are here to talk about that anniversary, and Colin is one of the uh, co-editors of a book produced by the Cato Institute recently, The Case Against the Jones Act, which is available at better booksellers uh, right now. So, Colin, if you wouldn't mind, uh, just for the benefit of our audience, get us up to speed on what the Jones Act is and what it does, and we'll drill down on some details uh, as this conversation goes on. Yes, the Jones Act is uh, Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. Uh, this law restricts waterborne domestic uh, transport of cargo to vessels that are U.S. registered, that are at least 75% U.S. owned, at least 75% U.S. crewed, and built in the United States. Um, I, I would say this law has three primary impacts uh, on the United States. It's, it's bad for our economy. It has harmed our national security, and I think it also has a deleterious impact on our politics and promotes dysfunction within our government. Um, and we can unpack that as the conversation goes along. All right. So, um, Dan, why was this project started at, at Cato? It's, it's, it was so obscure, so few people even knew what it was. Um, w- why bring this project to Cato? Well, you know, it has always been on our radar. If you go back to our trade objectives, you know, departmental objectives uh, 20 years ago, uh, addressing uh, the cost of the Jones Act has always uh, been been there on, on those annual uh, reports. Uh, but, you know, we never really took a, a real comprehensive approach to addressing the Jones Act. And over the years, there have been attempts to bring to the public's attention the costs of the Jones Act. but those those efforts usually were took the form of an op-ed or two that went after the Jones Act, and in response to that would be a barrage of uh, of commentary from the pro Jones Act lobby pointing out that uh, that that the accusers were wrong, and there just wasn't a very comprehensive effort. It was like you know shooting twenty two caliber bullets at the hull of a battleship, and so uh, Peter Gettler and I talked about it and. Uh, uh, we identified this as a, as an area that has massive benefits if we can achieve some sort of reform, economic benefits, national security benefits, environmental benefits, um, infrastructure cost reduction, things like that. And uh, it's been around for almost 100 years, and we thought that uh, that was too much, and it was time to um, really uh, 
come up with sort of a, a D-Day approach to once and for all topple this this edifice that has, uh, you know, it's a, it's a it, it's it's sort of a paragon of public choice, and you see the concentrated benefits and dispersed costs of this of this law, and as a result, there's really never been a push. Uh, a real sincere push to get rid of it. And uh, so we decided that we would try to spearhead that effort. And I think uh, it has really come, it has come together and it will soon bear fruit. Uh, how much did Puerto Rico, the experience there, uh, play into that decision? Or was that afterwards? The hurricane occurred after, um, after our decision to launch the project, as did uh the you know evidence of uh, Puerto Rico's exclusion from the natural gas market in the U.S. Uh, th- those uh, uh, stories came to the fore primarily because of a lot of the work the Colin has done. Um, but you know, Puerto Rico and Hawaii and Alaska, the non-contiguous territories and states, uh, have long had a problem uh, with the Jones Act. They suffer disproportionately, and uh, Puerto Rico's woes. Uh, served as an opportunity to highlight uh, the, the the problems with the Jones Act. Okay, to you, Colin. Um, the Jones Act has been on the books for a hundred years, and uh, so surely there's a lot of really good data out there about how it functions, about how much uh, shipping is done via this channel or that channel. What did you find when you started digging into this? Well, one of the things that we found when we started to dig into this is the the dearth of data, the lack of good information out there. In fact, the last time the U.S. government even made an attempt to calculate the Jones Act's cost on a national scale was 2002. So we're coming up on you know 18 years uh, since the government has even attempted to calculate uh, the Jones Act's cost to the U.S. economy. I think fundamental to good public policy is an understanding of what the costs are of a policy, what the benefits are, and assessing the trade-offs between them. And instead, we're, we're fumbling in the dark here. Uh, we, we don't know what the costs of the Jones Act are. We can kind of ballpark it. Uh, we can come up with some rough estimates, but there is no good uh, referential study out there as to what the costs are. We don't even know what the benefits of the Jones Act are. Uh, you know, you can say, well, how many Jones Act ships are there? And there are currently 98. But I think it would be false to say, well, absent the Jones Act, there would be no ships. So we don't know how many extra ships do you get, if any. I think you can make a very good argument. There are fewer ships uh, because of the Jones Act, fewer mariners, that we have a worse maritime industry because of the Jones Act. Um, And and what's interesting here is that uh, despite that dearth of data, no one has really raised a red flag and said, this is wrong. We need to address this and this needs to be assessed and I suspect this is due to the fact that the, the Jones Act lobby thrives on this opacity and this lack of transparency into costs. Uh, they would prefer that nobody talk about this. They don't want an examination, a deep examination of the issue and assessment of what the costs are and the, and the trade-offs. Because I think that if people were to open their eyes and take a real look at this law and deeply scrutinize it, they would find that it doesn't make any sense, that it's harmful, that the costs far outweigh any benefits that might uh, exist, and that to the extent there are any benefits produced by this law, they can be met in, uh, or addressed in much more efficient fashion through other means. Uh, the top line numbers uh, to, to either of you, what do we know are the costs uh, and, and benefits of the Jones Act, and what do we suspect they might be? Well, if I can take a stab at this, um, there are 
cost components the way we the way we look at it and some of those components uh there have been estimates of the cost of some of those components the others were we're actually working on to to come up with but let me let me just suggest that uh you know the various economic studies out there uh have predominantly focused on the distribution of rents between the ship builders themselves the carriers those are the companies that ship the products and the shippers those are actually the customers who use those shipping services and you know they've focused and some of the studies from the from the past have come up with a couple of billion dollars um, but they have really not taken into account the, the secondary and the tertiary costs and those are incredibly important um, so first of all protecting domestic shipbuilders from foreign competition of course raises the cost of ship to domestic ships to domestic carriers and then restricting shipping routes exclusively to domestic carriers uh compels the use uh who are compelled to use uh you know domestic labor raises the cost of transportation to shippers and those those costs are passed down those are considered the transportation costs but then we also have you know when cargo is diverted from the water to highways and railways and airways there are additional environmental costs to consider we we published a study uh early this year uh, from Timothy Fitzgerald, from former C uh, Council of Economic Advisors, economist, he's a professor at Texas Tech, uh, and his numbers were he came up with about eight about eight billion dollars a year in, in environmental costs, carbon and particulate matter, et cetera. The third set of costs we we have are um, infrastructure costs in the U.S. when when cargo is diverted to roads and rail, it exacerbates wear and tear on on bridges, on roads, on rail. Um, we don't have a number yet associated with that, and we're working on that. The transportation costs are, are a very important component of the ultimate cost to consumers of manufactured products. I mean, the, uh, transportation is the ultimate intermediate good. You know, we talk about steel and how when we put tariffs on steel, it adversely affects steel using industries, and there are many more steel using industries and workers in those industries. Well, everybody uses transportation, and this affects uh, a broad, broad swath of the economy. Uh, the fourth uh, cost area is um, lost wages and lost output due to traffic delays. If you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of more trucks on the road every every day, creating traffic, you lose time and and, and wages. And as a result, uh, there are the estimate that we've come up with is is close to eight billion dollars a year for that, uh, for the for for traffic congestion. Then there's also the the loss of domestic sales when when domestic transportation costs are so high as the Jones Act uh, makes them. Uh, there is more incentive to sell products to foreign purchasers or to purchase intermediate goods. From, from foreign companies. And so that uh, limits domestic commercial opportunities in the United States. And, and then the final sixth category that, that we've been looking into uh, is the cost of lost export markets. Uh, when you, you know, the, the Jones Act is a trade barrier. And because we insist on protecting these markets, shipbuilders and shipping, foreign governments are uh, less uh, able to open up their markets to U.S. goods and services. So there is a protectionist element to this that translates into costs, opportunity costs for, for U.S. companies. We're putting this all together. My, 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 I suspect 
that the number will be somewhere between 70, 80 billion dollars per year. And, uh, and, you know, over the course of a hundred years, you know, adjusted for time, this is a huge, huge cost, even in today's world where if we throw around numbers like trillions and tens of trillions, uh, like, like they're meaningless. But we are talking about potentially tens of trillions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying that it's, it's, it's hard to wrap your brain around a large number now when the government, the U.S. government is going to so much debt and we're spending so much money, uh, you know, needlessly. Um, but yes, I was, if it's 70 to $80 billion a year, uh, over a hundred years, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> quite a lot. I can't do the, I can't do the present value in the top off the top of my head, but we are planning to have a study come out this year, which will give our estimate of, of the costs, the full costs of the Jones Act. Uh, Colin, Dan mentioned, and I think this is excellent framing, transportation is the ultimate intermediate good. Uh, and as uh, I like to hammer as much as I can whenever uh, I talk about trade uh, on the Cato Daily Podcast or on Cato Audio, uh, so much of what the U.S. imports is stuff that we use, we Americans use, to make other stuff. So what do we have any idea of what the co- the specific costs are to American producers of having this law in the books? So when it comes to the Jones Act and, and the cost of transportation, we, we all know that it results in increased cost of transportation, that it results in higher costs. That's just intuitive. This restricts supply of the ships you can use, and then the ships themselves uh, cost more because they have to be U.S. built, which adds additional costs, U.S. crude additional costs. But how much more? Uh, I think there are a few examples that we can look at that are instructive. Back in 2012, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York uh, examine how much it would cost to ship a container of household items from the East Coast to Puerto Rico. And it found that it was roughly twice as expensive as to send that same container from the U.S. to neighboring Jamaica or the Dominican Republic. And when it comes to liquid uh transport liquid goods like refined products or oil, uh, we find even higher uh, costs. Uh, The Congressional Research Service put out a report several years ago that found that to ship uh, oil from the Gulf Coast to Canada was roughly um, three times uh, um, less expensive than it's in that same oil, uh, a shorter distance to refineries on the mid-Atlantic. There's even an example from the uh, government accountability office uh, that found to ship oil from Alaska to the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is exempt from the Jones Act, costs three times less than to send that same oil through the Panama Canal to the Gulf Coast, which is a roughly half the distance in terms of sailing distance, um, and yet was three times the price. So I think this is instructive. We consistently find examples of costs being doubled or tripled uh, to the Jones Act when we compare Jones Act shipping to international shipping. Now, I find that pretty instructive. Caleb, if, I mean, if I could just introduce a little bit of perspective on, on these numbers, according to calculations that we've done from, from data obtained from the Bureau of Transportation Statistics, U.S. businesses, government, and households incurred about $2.2 trillion in transportation expenses in, in 2017. So that intermediate input is needed to deliver raw materials to factories, uh, finished products to warehouses, uh, to, to wholesalers, retailers, businesses, residences. So the Jones Act clearly inflates those transportation costs. Um, and I would say conservatively, 
if the Jones Act explains a mere 1% of those costs, getting rid of the law would free up $22 billion a year in transportation expenses. So that's just to put it in perspective, we're going to try to fine tune that in our study that's coming out later this year. Yeah. And if you, if you sit there, this is why I love talking about trade is because the, the costs associated with restrictions uh, become really clear and the numbers get very big. Uh, so, uh, and if you're a commuter in uh, a coastal city, there's potential for the Jones Act to lengthen your commute. And that's uh, part of why you guys bought billboards uh, com- telling people, hey, you don't like traffic. Uh, well, what did it say, Dan? The the billboard itself? Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you're stuck in traffic, uh, blame the Jones Act. And uh, then it, uh, I think there was a URL that linked to some of our work on that study, uh, on that project. And there we had, um, you know, there's a con- transportation consultancy called INRIX, and it found it, it, it evaluates the cost of, of traffic uh, on the U.S. economy on a, an annual basis. And in 2018, it found that Americans lost an average of 97 hours to traffic congestion, costing them $87 billion a year in lost wages, an average of uh, about 1300 per driver. And then, you know, we factored in that about 20% of that traffic is attributable to, to trucks. Uh, and then we also factored in which uh, routes, which truck routes could be easily substituted on the water and took the, those out of the equation. And then we found, uh, I, I think it was something like eight, $8 billion of savings per year. So yes, I mean, there's, uh, you know, the shin bones connected to the knee bones connected to the thigh bone and, and all these spill on costs are real. Uh, Colin, uh, in the book, uh, you have multiple chapters written by various scholars who have examined uh, particular aspects of the Jones Act. One of them is uh, Kali'i Akina, he is uh, head of the Grassroot Institute in Hawaii. What did he write about? Uh, Dr. Akina takes the perspective that the inability to advance Jones Act reform is largely due to the fact the other side um, employs a national security argument that says that uh, repealing the Jones Act would harm U.S. national security. And uh, so what, by reducing the number of ships available to that, that could be used by the U.S. military to transport supplies and equipment in times of war. So essentially what he argues is that rather than taking on the Jones Act wholesale, um, we should take on particular aspects of it. Uh, he, he recommends that we play a particular focus be placed on the U.S. build requirement. This, of course, is the requirement that any vessel transporting goods within the United States has to be built in the United States, which is an incredibly unusual uh, requirement, both in terms of cabotage laws found throughout the world. Very few other countries have this type type of requirement, but also within U.S. transportation law. Uh, of course, there is no other form of transportation that we impose such a requirement. You, you can use you know, Airbus airplanes to fly from one part of the United States to another, of course, to use foreign built trucks, pretty much any other form of transportation, you can use um, vehicles, forms of transport that were built abroad, with the exception of anything that floats. And he recommends that we, uh, that advocates of reform address this particular facet of the Jones Act and press for shipbuilding, um, uh, changes to the shipbuilding requirement. The logic there is pretty straightforward. U.S. built ships 
cost four to five times as much as those built in other countries. If we were to remove that provision alone from the Jones Act, it would have the result of making US uh, of making vessels much cheaper to buy. Rather than buying a ship for, you know, say as much as $250 million, in fact, there's a new ship associated delivered later this year. Price tag is $255 million. Overseas, that's a $50 million ship. Cheaper ships means more ships. And if the Jones Act is really all about national security, we should want more ships and we should make it easier for Americans to buy them. I think properly understood, this U.S. build requirement is a self-imposed embargo. Um, and, and I don't understand, you know, embargoes are a punishment you typically meet out to other countries. Um, and we're effectively just punishing ourselves for no reason. So, uh, you and I have spoken about this before, and that is foreign flagged, uh, and indeterminately crude, uh, ships can bring products to Seattle. They can then go on to San Francisco and bring additional products to San Francisco. But if they want to pick something up in Seattle and then take it to San Francisco as part of this long trip that a lot of these uh, carrier ships do, they can't do that. And and at that point, they cannot help Americans trade with each other. Exactly. One misconception I think that exists about the Jones Act is that it keeps foreign ships out of U.S. ports. Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't even mean that they can't go between U.S. ports. It doesn't restrict foreign the foreign movement of ships um, at all. It just restricts what they can do. So the reality is that we have dozens, hundreds of foreign ships in our ports that go from U.S. port to U.S. port, and they pick up goods that are destined for abroad. They drop off goods that originated from foreign countries. What they cannot do is move goods between those those ports. So, you know, I, I've used this analogy before that this is effectively a conveyor belt that exists along our coasts that Americans are banned from using. That doesn't make sense. Dan, what have we seen in terms of uh, legislation for, for many decades? Nothing, right? Uh, and But we have seen some movement on it, even if it, it's not particularly promising in terms of legislative prospects. That's right. Uh, well, Senator John McCain used to introduce legislation to repeal the Jones Act, but it was more symbolic, I think, than anything else. Um, there are some members of the Senate uh, and some in the House who are uh, sympathetic to doing something about the Jones Act. Uh, Mike Lee introduced a bill uh, last year to to repeal the Jones Act. There's just not a whole lot of support for it. And uh, it, it turns out that uh, members and senators tend only to hear from those interests that want to preserve the status quo. They're just, you know, because of the, the concentrated benefits and the dispersed costs, those people who who who. Uh, have to deal with those massive costs are not particularly inclined to, to lobby Congress because individually it's just a small amount. Uh, you know, it, it, we've heard uh, from people on Capitol Hill saying that they very rarely hear from anybody who wants reform, and it's sometimes it seems it's just the think tank community that that is that is promoting it. There's a there's a built-in disincentive to lobby in favor for Jones Act reform. For example. If you're dependent on shipping, uh, if you're dependent, if you're in Hawaii, for example, or, or Puerto Rico or Alaska, and you're dependent on shipping and you're advo advocating to get rid of something that is benefiting the carrier that you're dependent upon, uh, you may get singled out. They may decide that they no longer want to move your cargo. 
uh, they may make it more costly or more difficult for, for that to happen. So um, we, there has to be this, this sort of grassroots effort, uh, which I think we've spearheaded, uh, combined with this, the, this um, exposing this national security canard. I mean, the Jones Act was supposed to benefit national security. It really is, has come at a great expense to national security. And I think that the evidence is mounting and I think we're beginning to see people, former military, uh, people who were in, in, working within government who were sort of sworn to secrecy at, at uh, earlier times who are now coming forward to point out that this really is uh, uh, hurting us uh, militarily as well as economically. Okay, uh, Colin, to you, you have a chapter in in the book, The Case Against the Jones Act, that details how to activate those who pay these diffuse costs uh, that the Jones Act creates. What is What does that chapter deal with? Yes, so there's a chapter in the book that addresses the national security argument um, that, that, that's usually... Uh, used to, to justify the law. Uh, I think it's high time that this law, that this uh, argument be scrutinized. It, it often goes um, unquestioned, and there's just this uh, assumption out there that Jones Act is good for national security. And so what we decided to do is actually investigate these claims. And what we found is that, in fact, you can make a very good argument that the opposite is true, that on net, the Jones Act harms U.S. national security. So why would that be? Well, as we discussed before, a key one key provision of the Jones Act is that U.S. build requirement. And well, unfortunately, if if you go back in time, when when U.S. maritime protectionism first began in the uh, late 1700s, the United States had a very competitive uh, sh shipbuilding industry. In fact, uh, U.S. Um, shipbuilders were world renowned for both their quality and cost competitiveness. But as time went on, that changed, and this protected market um, could not keep up with, with changing times. When ships moved from the wooden ships to ships built of iron and steel, uh, the U.S. was left behind because there was no incentive to innovate because they were granted this um, captive market. And so even before the Jones Act was passed, uh, we, we've had this U.S. build requirement. And you can go back to you know the late 1800s and U.S. ships were still 20% more expensive than those built in other countries. Well, as, as time has gone on, we're now at a point where instead of being 20% more expensive, they are three to 400% more expensive. And when something becomes more expensive, you get less of it. And that certainly holds true for the Jones Act fleet. If you look back over recent decades, the number of Jones Act ships has declined from well over 400 back in the 1950s to just 98 today. It turns out that forcing Americans to pay out the nose for the ships they buy is not very conducive to promoting a, a vibrant uh, fleet that can be used by the military in times of war. So we have fewer ships. We have an uncompetitive shipbuilding sector, which is exactly what one would expect when a shipbuilding sector is protected and spared from competition. The, the foundation of being competitive is actually uh, being forced to compete, which is something we do not find. And, and then when it comes to, to times of conflict, times of war, when the Jones Act fleet has been called upon, it's been lacking. Uh, when the Jones Act has been put to the test, it has utterly failed. If we go back to Operations Desert Shield, Desert Storm back in the early 90s, um, we had a massive need to move 
uh, equipment and supplies in a very short amount of time and over a very large distance? And how many, sh how many Jones Act ships uh, rose to the occasion and were used to transport goods from the U.S. mainland to Saudi Arabia? One. There's only one ship used. They're not available. There are very few of them. And one reason they're not available is because the, the few that do exist are busy transporting supplies to Puerto Rico, Alaska, Hawaii. Well, if you remove those ships from the fleet, who's going to transport those supplies? We don't let foreign ships do it. Um, so the, the theory behind the Jones Act and the reality are very different. This is a law that is meant to encourage a fleet, to encourage a shipbuilding capacity. And instead, we've seen a declining fleet and a declining shipbuilding capacity, which is exactly what one would expect uh, when, when you really study these provisions. Having an uncompetitive shipbuilding sector and expensive transportation means that people don't use ships. And so we don't have much of a fleet left over. We're going to leave it right there. The book is The Case Against the Jones Act, available at Better Booksellers. And it is a product of the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Dan Eikenson and Colin Grabo, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. As the coronavirus pandemic took hold, shuttered businesses, even temporarily shuttered ones, became the norm, and some strange economic data began to emerge. Bruce Yandel is Dean Emeritus of the Clemson University College of Business and Behavioral Science, and he produces a quarterly economic report for the Mercatus Center. For the Cato Daily Podcast, we discussed the quirks in the economic data and what they mean for the economy. Bruce, you produce a quarterly economic report. What have we learned uh, from the coronavirus about our economy? Wow, what a question. I do turn out a quarterly report, and the most recent one was posted on June the 1st. Uh, but as you know, with the coronavirus, every day is another day full of news and data. But we have learned some things. Um, I think the First thing that I would say we've learned is it's a whole lot easier to close down an economy than to start one up after it has been closed. And so right now, anyone who is attempting to explain what the economy is doing, I would suggest, has to first take into consideration that they are looking at a biological phenomenon. And so then it's a guess as to what the virus is doing. Is it accelerating? Is it mutating? Will there be another spike? And so assumptions have to be made about the virus. Then secondly, you have to make some assumptions about what state governors and mayors of cities will do with respect to opening or closing their economy. And then having stumbled through all of that, you think, well, what about interest rates? What about trade? What about things we normally think of when trying to track our economy? And right now, of course, there are people who are brave enough to make forecasts. And uh, so we know what those forecasts are. And then there's some other daily data that we get that give us some signals, some pretty good signals, I would say, about where we are today. All right. So uh, you say that it's a bold process to be engaged in any kind of forecasting uh, right now. Uh, with respect to employment, we've never seen 
uh, a spike in unemployment like the one we saw uh, in March and April. Um, is there anything we can say with confidence about what that means? I mean, it's coming down now, it appears, but uh, uh, what is there anything that we've learned since that spike in unemployment that uh, should make us feel better or worse? There are some things that should make us feel better when we, on the surface, uh, when we got the data, the most recent data, first Friday in June, saying that two and a half million names had been added to payrolls across the economy. Uh, that was doggone good news. Two and a half million is a big number. Indeed, the largest number on a monthly edition as far back as the eye can see. Uh, then, of course, that generated a an unemployment number that was down from April's unemployment number, but still, as you indicated, the largest since the 1930s. But when we look at those data, when we engage in discussions with regard to the data, we have to be cautious because there are a large number of people who are not working, who do not think of themselves as being unemployed, they think of themselves as being furloughed, which is what they were told by their employer. And so that means each month when the telephone survey takes place by the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the nice voice says, is there anyone in this household who is unemployed and looking for work? It's quite possible that the person speaking thinks, I'm not unemployed, I'm furloughed. And so the answer is no. Then another person identically situated, might answer yes. And so we have some difficulty interpreting that data, which says, be cautious. That said, we're still back to two and a half million names that have been added to payrolls in that month. Yeah. So we, I think we saw something similar with the uh, stimulus of 2008, 2009. Uh, that is the measures that the president and uh, the White House was using indicated jobs that had been uh, saved or created uh, by the stimulus plan. Uh, a lot of people who were trying to fill out paperwork for that, frankly, weren't doing a great job for understandable reasons. Yes, that's true. And so that said, it says, hey, we're, we're sort of sailing on a rocky sea over waters we have not seen before. And that makes us, or it should make us, cautious in making a, a normal interpretation of numbers that come to us. But we got that good um, employment data, Caleb, as you know. Well, but then last week, we got some very good numbers on retail sales. Um, and I would suggest those numbers may be a little safer uh, to celebrate than were the employment numbers. Um, so we had, we had a big boom in retail sales. And you normally expect to have a big boom when you've had nothing before. So our economy is a command economy. It's being opened up gradually. And it was sort of interesting when people had a chance to go shopping recognizing that they have bank accounts and savings accounts that, generally speaking, are full of cash uh, that could not be spent anywhere other than Amazon or any other place that would deliver. They went shopping big time. Um, and so that 
is a more positive signal or a more reliable signal, I would suggest, than the employment data, but it's reinforcing of the positive employment data. Uh, So I want to get back to something you just said, and you just sort of glossed over it, and that is we live in a command economy. Uh, And you and I spoke a few weeks ago just briefly, and uh, Americans aren't used to seeing what looks like a command economy. So, So walk us through the steps of understanding why the United States, in your view, is at least temporarily, a command economy? Well, it it seems to me that the stronger influence uh, in the executive branch, in the White House, with respect to the coronavirus, the stronger influence came from people who are charged with responsibilities for public health, for helping us to avoid tragedies of any virus or any biological form And so those voices became dominant, and understandably, another loud voice, another location that began to dominate was New York, New York City, the hot spot in our nation with respect to the virus. And so the average person begins to hear reports from New York City several times a day on television programs, and the president holds press conferences every day where the public health people hold forth. The virus is a killer. We know that. We also know that somehow people have got to make a living and life has to go on. And so that's where the trade-off has come. And as a country, in terms of policy, we tilted toward shutting down as a way to try to minimize the harms. And then that varied across states. Some states, California being a prime example, was the first mover in shutting down the entire state, and then others followed in different ways. And now we are in a reopening period that can back down, uh, as an example, uh, restaurants in my little town of Clemson, South Carolina, gradually opened. But the rules of the health authority says if one employee is found to be tested positive for coronavirus, your restaurant has to close down for 14 more days. And so we're on rocky water uh, in this command economy as we stumble, I would suggest, toward a more meaningful recovery. Uh, in auto production, and this is something that we we talked about a, a few weeks ago, uh, many assembly plants were shut down. Um, I don't know the extent to which they've reopened, uh, but this has had a lot of effects in, on the new car market, obviously, but also on the used car market. So what have you seen in auto production that uh, is at least interesting, if not good or bad? There's some things that are encouraging, Caleb, and and uh, I, I would also uh, hark back for a moment to the command economy. There's a temptation, always a temptation, uh, with respect to very smart people or people who consider themselves to be very smart, and that's probably all of us, but there's a great temptation to think, hey, uh, I can just push some buttons and issue some orders and and put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We can get this economy perking again if we just issue enough commands. We can never fully appreciate how complex 
a market economy is with millions of linkages and millions of interdependencies. And now let's get to the auto industry and your question. When the auto industry attempted to come back online, they've got to get parts from thousands of sources, more than thousands. And so there's somebody else shut down somewhere else where they need a part and they have to figure out how we're going to get around that dead end. And they're putting it together. Uh, the most recent data on retail sales showed considerable strength for auto sales, which means there will be considerable strength for orders back to the assembly plants, which means they will be bumping into those constraints. And in addition to that, they are having to deal with the coronavirus constraint itself. That is, workers who may not be able to get to work or some who do and are fearful about their health. And so we have that bumpy, uneven startup for a major industry, which will play a fundamental role in our efforts to accelerate our economy. So uh, you describe all the thousands of parts that go into an automobile. That's a bit more complicated than making a pencil. Uh, and presumably there are uh, <laughs> industries uh, like autos. Uh, I'm thinking of uh televisions, any number of consumer electronics and, and things we might not even think of that we have yet to really see a lot of the effects in terms of price and availability for basic goods that people want to consume. That's true. And, and part of that may have to do with the fact that retailing has just reopened. Uh, sort of interesting, Caleb, when you look at what people collectively across our nation chose to spend most of their money on in terms of retail, the most recent data for last month, the number one item was clothing, a huge surge in clothing sales. The second item was furniture. And I thought, well, gee whiz, what are people doing going out buying furniture after they have been shut up for several weeks or months? But it was exercise equipment which fell into that category of furniture. And so to, to some extent, the things that people were hungry to buy were things that clothing, and some people suggest most of that was for tops and not bottoms because they were communicating virtually. And so, so there's a big surge in top sales and exercise equipment uh, that took place. And there was a big surge in auto sales, as indicated, uh, probably pickup trucks that went off the lots. What explains that? If, if you have a, even, even a hypothesis? Not really, other than the fact that pickup trucks have sort of been at the top of the heap now for recent years. Uh, conventional passenger car sales have been headed south with an acceleration. Pickup trucks are in, but other than that, I don't have any other theoretical explanation. It may be that well, maybe, you know, as we, as you thinking while you speak, uh, it could be somewhat similar to the surge that we are seeing in small trailers, camping trailers, big surge there. Uh, when I travel, what little I do, I see them on the highways, the interstates. And so it appears that there are families who say, well, we are a little cautious about flying off for a vacation. Uh, let's just take some of that money and buy us a trailer and we'll go camping and we'll be safe. There may be the same feeling about those big pickup trucks. 
If you didn't know that there was a, a viral pandemic going around the globe right now, uh, would you have been surprised by what happened in the housing market between uh, March, April, and May? Uh, 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 to some extent. But what happened with construction varied across the states. Some state governors declared construction to be an essential activity. And so construction was not shut down in those states. Other governors did not make that same declaration. And so construction was shut down in their states. And so we have a mixed bag when we look across the 50 states. The thing that is surprising to me uh, is when we look at the most recent data, large increase in permits being issued, large increase in new home sales, that sector looks healthy, and it's been an ongoing sector. And so I guess that's why, relative to most everything else, it did not square with the coronavirus problem. For example, if you look at commodities, Caleb, and price increases, if you look at the producer price index and say, okay, are there any producers of anything that can get a price increase in a world that is practically shut down? The answer is yes, producers of plywood wood products used for construction. Those prices are rising rather markedly. And of course, we all know that some of the groceries in the grocery stores, those price increases came through too, as we decided, had to discover, rediscover home cooking and, and doing shopping there. So, so in a way to try to wrap up an answer to your question, I would say we've got a really interesting mixed bag with construction because of partial shutdowns in some places, not in others, but it does appear to be a healthy sector. Um, do you have any explanation for why the stock market appears to be engaged in what I saw described on Twitter as the Terminator rally, which is you can shoot it, you can... Uh, <laughs> punch it in the face you can do all sorts of things to it and and for for whatever reason uh the stock market appears to just continue to go up i do not uh, and if i if i even thought i had an explanation i probably wouldn't share it because it would turn out to be wrong later i've never been i've never been any good at making a forecast about what financial markets are going to do and what the equity markets are going to do. I have to say, I certainly am enjoying it. And most everyone else is who has a 401k or has money in the market. But uh, I do hope that uh, the investors all taken together are seeing light at the end of a long tunnel, but it's a tunnel that has been very dark. And it may just be a 40-watt bulb that they see at the end, but given the darkness of the tunnel, it looks very bright. Maybe that's a theory, Caleb, about what's happening to the S&P, the Dow Jones, and other aggregate measures of market performance. We've seen a lot of uh, state-level deregulation, some uh, apparently temporary regulation at, at the federal level. Um, obviously, the home delivery of alcohol is one that uh, consumers will not be uh, quick to give up. But uh, should policymakers be concerned about uh, reinstituting uh, regulations that they've shed as a result of the coronavirus? 
I think so. Uh, the, the, we were already in a sort of season of deregulation when the Trump administration came into office. As we know, uh, they took immediate steps to hit the brake pedal on new rules, new proposed rules. They also came in with their pull up two old rules for every new one you plant. They delivered on that promise until last year. It turned out to be 1.7 pulled up for each one planted. That's still a rather ambitious uh, and I would say, given their goal, successful outcome for moving away from an age of high regulation, which we have been in for a nation for decades now, to a new age uh, where the number of pages in the Federal Register, a very crude indicator, have fallen from in the 80,000s to in the 60,000s. But some things are being learned as a result of this coronavirus thing. Every constraint, I guess Warren Buffett has this wonderful expression, You don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. The tide has gone out. For example, we realize, gee whiz, there are state regulations that prohibit doctors from trying to meet an emergency in New York from some other state saying, hey, I'll just drive over and help out. No, sorry, you're not certified to practice medicine in New York. You're from Connecticut or you're from South Carolina. And so suddenly those rules begin to sort of seem nonsensical in a world where you're trying to solve problems. I think the same thing is true for countless other rules, delivery of food, uh, delivery of pharmaceutical products, on and on. And so I'm sort of hoping that people will become generally better informed about the regulatory constraints that have been affecting their lives for years and demanding political action to let's pull up more of those regulations as we attempt to plant new ones. Let's keep the pulling up going strongly. Bruce Yandel is Dean Emeritus at Clemson's College of Business and Behavioral Science. When reporters talk about police shootings, the words they use are often odd, as if the officer was just a passive witness to their own guns firing and killing people. Radley Balco, a Cato Institute media fellow and a columnist at the Washington Post, calls it the exonerative tense. We spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast in June. There is this sort of uh, way that reporters write about and I'll just use the term they use, police-involved shootings. Uh, And uh, it seems that there are mental gymnastics or linguistic gymnastics that they go through in order to, you know, make it appear as if it wasn't a police officer who shot someone, uh, or at least present it in such a way that it would be reasonable for your takeaway to be that what actually occurred is not actually what occurred. <laughs> right. Um, I, I call it the exonerative tense. And it's, um, I think media in a lot of ways are just sort of mimicking what they see in police reports and, and hear from police spokespeople. But it's this way of kind of deflecting responsibility uh, for what you've done. And so the way, you know, it's it's often phrased, as you'll see, uh, you know, after confronting a, you know, 24-year-old 20, 24 black male uh, the officer's gun fired. 
um, or, uh, you know, the, the suspect was struck by a bullet fired from an officer's gun. Um, the weapon discharged. The weapon discharged. You know, it reminds you of the, the kind of classic uh, trope about, you know, the politician has just been caught in a major scandal and they give a speech where they say, you know, mistakes were made, right? Um, uh, it's, it's a lot of times it's, it's grammatically the passive tense, but uh, sometimes it's not passive. It's just this kind of uh, way of um, removing kind of direct responsibility for what happened. Uh, and you contrast that to, you know, police reports about people, you know, suspected of committing crimes. And it's always, you know, the suspect then did X, the suspect then, you know, assaulted X. Uh, but when it's a police officer, it's always uh, the gun that did the shooting uh, or the bullet that did the damage and never the officer. Um, w- w- you know, years ago when I was a reporter, um, I-, I can remember going to a home uh, where police were already on the scene. It was a shooting. And I remember very clearly asking the public information officer out front, uh, was the body found inside or outside of the house? Uh, and he told me that is under investigation. <laughs> and yeah. I, and I, and I, I, I just, you know, there are these, these times when you are dependent as a reporter on information directly from a police department and they won't even say, uh, who did what, like right. think things that are not in dispute, uh, they won't necessarily say so for reporters that are trying to deal with that and and try to you know, one avoid some liability for saying the wrong thing, uh, but also are just trying to present the best uh, version of events. Uh, what should they do? Well, I mean, you 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 write what you know to be true, and you write it in the in the active voice, and you don't sort of parrot police lines that tend to. Uh, phrase things in a way that eschew responsibility. Um, you know, I, 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 I have a couple of reactions to what you what you just said. I think, um, you know, I've used the phrase "officer involved shooting," and I don't particularly like it. Um, but there are also, you know, there are some times when it makes sense because you're trying to distinguish a a shooting committed by an officer versus an officer who was shot, right? So if you say police shootings, that could be interpreted as a police officer who was shot as opposed to one who did the shooting. So sometimes sort of depending on the space and the context of what you're writing, uh, you know, officer involved shooting, I don't like it. Um, but, you know, some of these examples are much more absurd and extreme and often hilarious uh, than that. Um, but I do think there's this interesting question about local reporters and beat reporters because, you know, I, I kind of, I'm a, opinion journalist, I work for the Post, I do a lot of investigative reporting, but I also have the advantage of being able to kind of parachute into a, a city or county or whatever where something has happened, um, and I can write my story, and I can be very critical of the police, and then I can go back to my, fly back to Nashville and continue my my job, you know, with the Washington Post. Uh, B reporters, uh, you know, rely on police departments to be able to do their jobs, um, and it, and, you know, I think you see um, and I, I've also been critical of the, of the amount of reverence and sort of deference that that local reporters give to local police. Um, but I can also understand it because, um, you know, if you if you anger them, uh, they can make it a lot more difficult for, for you to do your, your job. Um, and, you know, I'd like to see 
reporters generally be more skeptical of, of law enforcement sources. But I mean, it is definitely a problem. It's particularly a problem when, in, in, you know, with the kind of death of newspapers where there's increasingly less competition among newspapers. Yeah, there's a, I, I know that uh, when there are cases in which the police have shot and sometimes killed somebody that there's almost inevitably one or two stories that come out within days, which is a complete rundown of uh, every inter- every negative interaction that that individual, the dead individual, had with police. Yeah. Well, there, there's, yeah. I mean, that and that comes straight from the police department. I mean, to give an even more extreme example, there's a case in Texas a few years ago. Uh, the guy still is, you know, hasn't been to trial yet, but it was a, a, another raid where the police... Um, actually didn't find any drugs where they didn't announce themselves until they had already battered down the door. And this guy grabbed a gun and shot and killed one of the police officers. Um, and it was a, a, in a small town in Texas and a local reporter there was, was covering it with the, what I would consider the appropriate amount of, of, you know, sort of um, scrutiny and, and skepticism. And uh, his paper uh, took him off the story and he was eventually fired from the paper. And uh, he was told by his editors that, uh, you know, the paper did not want to jeopardize its relationship with the police department. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's a thing you see much more in small towns. Um, I mean, there are plenty of big city newspapers, I think, that are too deferential as well. But in big cities, you tend to have at least, you know, some competition, if not from another newspaper, then maybe from a local news station. You know, somebody um, is going to start digging around and maybe get the, get the story out. But in, in smaller towns, it's, it's really a problem. Do you have any uh, evidence or is there literature uh, on how people tend to view these stories depending on how they're written? No, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I don't know how you would structure such a study, but that would be interesting. I mean, I will say that, you know, my um, in the 15 years or so I've been writing about this stuff, when you see a raid like the Breonna Taylor raid, you know, when I first started writing this, you'd go to the comment section on a, on a news, you know, local news site and it would almost always be, you know, thank God, you know, that criminal is dead or that thug is dead or, you know, lots of defending of the police, you know, thank God they, they're defending us every day. And I, I will say increasingly I see skepticism and, and questions about the, these kinds of tactics. And, you know, that's very sort of anecdotal and subjective. It's my kind of impression over the years of how that, that tenor has changed. But I think there's much more skepticism and, and, and willingness to kind of uh, question these kinds of types of tactics, particularly when they're used, you know, again, in, in um, to enforce, you know, nonviolent crimes like drug crimes. Bradley Balco is a columnist at the Washington Post and a media fellow at the Cato Institute. The Supreme Court and Congress are unwilling to roll back qualified immunity, at least right now. That's an invented legal doctrine that protects police that have violated the rights of Americans. In Colorado, a state that is no stranger to police abuse, they've acted where the feds have, well, dithered. Leslie Harrod is a Democratic state representative in Colorado. For the Cato Daily Podcast, we talked about state-level police reform and why it's needed. Following the deaths of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, uh, where I am, uh, George Floyd in uh, Minneapolis, and this, you know, apparent groundswell of support for Black lives, 
for ending police brutality. Uh, some states have acted where the feds have not. So what has Colorado done? Yeah. Well, I'm proud to say that Colorado has become the first state to end qualified immunity at the state level. Um, what we did was in direct response to the protesters, to the calls for justice, and on the unfortunate deaths of people right here in Colorado, like Elijah McLean and Devon Bailey, um, we introduced a sweeping reform package, law the, the Law Enforcement Accountability and Integrity Act, um, to really ensure that we were holding law enforcement officers accountable. So the bill does a few things. Uh, it changes the entire use of force statutes so that you can no longer do things like chokeholds or fleeing felon, meaning shooting someone in the back, but it also reigns in when it's appropriate to use force to an objective as opposed to subjective standard, which is really important. We also included a duty to intervene where law enforcement officers have to intervene if they see another law enforcement officer using excessive force. Um, there's a lot of data requirements in the bill. Every time you unholster your weapon, um, who you pointed at, all of those things are also in the bill. And we also take away your post-certification if you have excessive use of force. What is a post-certification? That's your ability to um, present in Colorado as a peace officer. So that you can't work as a peace officer ever again if you have this excessive use of force on your file. But the reframing and all of these different things that we put in law were really important because what we wanted to make sure was that law enforcement was held criminally and civilly um, liable and responsible for their actions, which is where the qualified immunity part comes in. And I know with the work that you're doing, you really care about that piece, but it's hugely important that we pass these measures across the country so that law enforcement officers understand that they will be personally held, held personally accountable when they overstep their bounds and they violate the law. Specifically with respect to qualified immunity and state law, uh, why does that matter? Why should states be uh, undertaking these uh, this kind of prohibition or ending qualified immunity when federal courts are right there and uh, that's where a lot of people would be seeking relief? Yeah. Well, the federal courts are not there yet on um, ending qualified immunity at the federal level. So we have to do it at the state level. But also states provide uh, a lot of times more protections uh, than the federal government. So having a state level intervention is so important. One, because the people have more access to, to justice through the state process. Um, but also because we do need to ensure that we're holding law enforcement accountable right now not waiting for the federal government to do it, and that folks are protected constitutionally for their constitutional constitutional rights right here in their own state. So it's really important that we pass it at the state level. And quite frankly, we can do it. We don't have to wait for the feds to act to make it happen. Um, let me tell you one, one way I look at it. It's very similar to asset forfeiture. Um, I ran an asset forfeiture bill in Colorado years ago, my first year as a freshman. We passed that bill. And people were saying, oh, we're going to wait for the feds. The feds are going to be fine. Well, here we are years later, and the feds still haven't done what they said was the right thing to do. So we needed to make sure that we had a state law because, one, it's eas easier to access the state courts. But, two, because we need to ensure that Coloradans are protected right here in our state and have access to justice, qualified immunity. We need to make sure that Coloradans right here have access to justice. So uh, what has been the response from your fellow lawmakers? Obviously, the bill passed. It was signed by uh, Governor Jared Polis. What is I mean, what what brought them to the table? 
was interesting because we did go back to that asset forfeiture um, model. So we pulled in folks who we thought uh, would be interested based on their support of that bill, um, Democrats and Republicans. Um, but initially we introduced the bill with all Democrats only. Um, and we had not had conversations with Republicans. And I think probably I didn't give people enough of a chance if I'm being honest with you, I'm, I'm a Democrat myself. Um, but as we introduced the bill, we went to law, former law enforcement officers. We went to conservative attorneys. Um, we went to members who represent rural districts and said, you know, which pieces of this bill can you get behind? And I will say, and I, I think, again, it's, it's because of the work of some conservative-led organizations who have worked on qualified immunity, um, who came in and had conversations about why this was important. Um, I think that is why, ultimately, um, the other side of the aisle, Republicans came over and chose to support this bill. Because when you explain it, when you explain that someone's violating someone's constitutional rights and they're hiding behind a shield of immunity, people kind of get that as wrong. That's not the way we should be acting in this country. We should not be giving people these blanket, this blanket immunity to do whatever they want. And you can see the abuses happening right here at, our, at the local level. So it, it, Colorado, it strikes me, seems to have uh, a culture of independence. Uh, it's notoriously a swing state uh, in presidential election years. Um, do you sense that this was a relatively easy sell that uh, other states might have a hard time replicating? Or is this something, this kind of big reform, something that any state can do? Well, I don't think it was an easy sell by any means, um, but I do think it's something that every state can do. You really just have to have the conversations. There are people and organizations and, and groups on both sides of the aisle, all sides of every aisle, who agree that qualified immunity needs to be removed. Now, qualified immunity has gone from a little tiny uh, protection to this huge ballooning, all-encompassing protection for a lot of um, government employees, but especially law enforcement officers. And when you start to explain that to people, you see them shifting and understanding that, you know, we are protectors of the Constitution. Um, we believe that people should have their constitutional rights and if they're violated, they should have recourse. And so you actually can see their faces change and people will say, yeah, this is the right thing to do. You just have to come at it from the perspective that they care most about. Um, that could be the right, that could be the left, or that could be the middle, but it is the right solution. And states can do it across the country. And I know states are considering it right now. Uh, what states? Well, you know, I wish I could, uh, I wish I could give you that information, that little teaser, but I can't, but I will tell but you. But there are, but I've there are lawmakers from other states who are speaking with you. Yes. I've received calls from lawmakers from across the country asking how they could pass a bill similar to ours. Um, and specifically asking about that qualified immunity piece. It's just so important. Have you had, uh, any conversations with Colorado's U.S. congressional delegation? I have. Um, you, you know, I, I will be fair again and say that I've only spoken to folks on the Democratic side of the aisle um, at this time, uh, but uh, I would assume there'd be support from the other side as well. Uh, the Democratic side is very much supportive of ending qualified immunity. Now, again, I'm only coming from it because I am a Democrat. But I'm not saying that Republicans won't support it because they did right here in Colorado. And those very influential Republican members um, have power over the federal, you know, have power in relationship with the federal delegation as well. 
So um, I think there's a real path here. Um, but again, we can't wait for the federal government to act. As we know, things shift, you know, by the minute. Um, and it's like, it's changing so quickly, but things are still moving just as slow through the federal process. And if you have your state constitution, why shouldn't you be held accountable to that? You know, why shouldn't law enforcement officers be accountable to the state constitution? That's what this does. You made note of the fact that, you know, state constitutions quite often provide uh, a great many additional protections uh, for uh, liberty interests than the U.S. Constitution does. And I've spoken with people who are judges, people who are attorneys who argue in state court, and they say, look, what judges need to look to the state constitution first and not rely on the U.S. Constitution, especially if they're state judges, this is—it's their job to work within within those confines. Do you uh, think that that this ending qualified immunity in Colorado is going to have a substantial impact, and how will you know if it has worked well? Absolutely, it will have a substantial impact. And, you know, you said all of the, the, you know, everything that you said, I completely agree with about the state access to someone's rights. But what we don't talk about is that actual shift in culture that will happen. Because again, people will be held personally liable for their actions. They won't be able to hide behind a shield. So similarly to maybe a doctor, maybe a nurse who has some personal skin in the game, if they, um, and if they have malpractice, right? That should happen um, with with law enforcement as well. It changes the culture. It holds them more accountable. And when they see red, it helps them to think before they act just a little bit more. Um, that's all we. That's all we're asking for. Um, but also, it will save lives. I mean, there are definitely places where we have seen across the country law enforcement officers acting outside of their of the scope of law, right? acting outside of what they should be able to do and not do, and they know it. And it unfortunately ends in the death of people, right? Um, the loss of lives. And we can actually rein that in and we can stop that. But beyond that, we've got things that are happening in our communities across the country, illegal search and seizures, you know, um, intimidation with a firearm, all of these things that are happening are actually now you could be held accountable both criminally and civilly. And again, I just think that is so important because it shouldn't just be, you know, we have one constitutional right that's protected. Maybe, you know, yes, we all agree that um, this person shouldn't have been murdered by law enforcement. But what about all the other things? What about all of the illegal search and seizures? You know, what about all of the raids? What about all of those other things that are happening? If they happen outside of the scope of the Constitution, that officer should be held accountable as well to that. Um, both, again, criminally and civilly. And I'll keep saying that because they both matter. Yeah. And if uh, to the extent that a police officer is engaging in some sort of intimidation tactic or does not receive consent for a certain kind of search, to the extent that those are open questions that are unresolved, it's it ought to be on state courts to resolve what those rights actually mean fleshed out. Absolutely. Turning off your body camera, right? Things like that. And those are things that the, the, the state court should, should figure out and we should have swift access to justice. Leslie Harrod is a Democratic state representative in Colorado.
Choice is an essential feature of the human condition. While many economists model people's behavior using idealized assumptions, economists of the Austrian school form economic theories by examining the logical structure of the choices people make. In Austrian Economics, an introduction, a new book from libertarianism.org, author Stephen Horwitz explains the Austrian school's insights on a wide range of economic topics and introduces some of its key thinkers. You can find Austrian Economics and Introduction at Cato.org and online retailers nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.